So let's get to it. We're going to read the book of Esther. And we're going to do as we've been doing. We read through the through uh, the, the Old Testament, and we've been doing this every day for 20 minutes a day. And then we spend another 20 to 30 minutes reflecting on the Word. And so we're going to be reading Esther, and we'll be reading the first chapter of Esther. If you can, go ahead and turn your Bibles there. And then we're just going to go where the Lord leads. I've got nothing prepared, nothing. I don't know where this is going to go, but we're just going to ask for the Lord to lead today as we engage in His Word. Uh, Esther chapter one, and we're going to pray. We're going to pray. Father, I ask you today, Lord, that you would guide us, that you would lead us today, Father, impart wisdom upon us, Lord, as we read your word, Father. I pray that this would not simply be our own uh, dissertation of the word that you've written, but Lord, that we would find divine revelation from you. Lord, bless us, Lord, as we engage. Lord, be with us. Lord, guide us, direct us, for we depend entirely upon you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Esther 1, and it says this. Now it came to pass in the days of Assyrius. This was Assyrius who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants and the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the promised provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver, a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served the drinks in the golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belongs to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, When the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, and Sarkis, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being uh, Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? 
because she did not obey the command of the king Ahasuerus brought to her eunuchs. And Memucan answered before the king and the princess, Queen Vashti, has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. When they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be an excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let the royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the law of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Hazarus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in his own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his house and speak in the language of his own people. Mm. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what she had decreed against, and what he what had been decreed against her. Sorry. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom, so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins in Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch custodian of the women, and let the beauty preparations be given to them. Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. And Shushan the citadel, where, the certain, where a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives, who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree was heard, were heard, and when many young women were gathered in Shushan the citadel under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations for her besides her allowance. The seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her family, her people, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what's hap what was happening to her. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months of preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned 
six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the woman's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubine. She would not go in to the king unless again the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go in to the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh month of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So she set the royal crown upon her head. Sorry, and he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the, of a king. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallow, on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. I want to remember that. I want to remember that. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were with the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were within the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman, to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the date in the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, Adar, sorry. 
Then Haman said to King Azurus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, or Haman, sorry, uh, the, pe- the money and the people are given to you to do with them as it seems good to you. And the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the, in the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by the couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women. And one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as a law in each province, being published for all the people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed by Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. One more chapter. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on a sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, He cried out with a loud and bitter cry and went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then he sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloths away from him and he would not accept them. And Esther called Hathash, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathash went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of a written decree for their destruction, which was given to Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplications to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathash returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathash and gave him a command for Mordecai. And all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. And I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai, 
Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews, for you will remain completely silent at this time. Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and I will go to the king, which is against the law, and I will perish. Sorry, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Oh, I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to make every effort to refrain from getting completely lit. I'm going to refrain. I'm going to try at least. I'm going to make every effort to refrain from getting all lit and all crazy and all out of control. Because I can tell you just by reading this, there is a fire that's brewing up in my bones. (laughs) There's a fire brewing up within me. Um, As I read this text, um, you can't read this book and not be moved. Let me say that one more time. You can't read the book of Esther and for something within you to not quicken. Like you, you can't read the book of Esther and not get lit in the process of reading it. Because there's a there's a certain thing that Esther does where Esther speaks into the heart of the contemporary believer. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Esther speaks into the heart of the contemporary believer because the book of Esther speaks into how we ought to live in what I would call an exilic reality. Some of you may ask the question, what is an exilic reality? An exilic reality is when you live with the cognizance that you have no citizenship in the region and the area that you live. Let me say that one more time. An exilic reality is when you live with the cognizance that you reside in a particular location and in a particular region that you do not have any right to. You have no sense of enfranchisement. You have no sense of voice. You are an exile living in a foreign land. You are a foreigner. You're you're a sojourner. You are a pilgrim. You are a person who doesn't reside in this particular location. This is not my home. And what Esther does is, is that Esther gives us this insight. It gives us this perspective. It gives us the perspective of what it meant to live 
in exile. Uh, how, how do exiles engage with the dominant culture? How does the minority engage in the majority context? How does the one whose rights have been limited engage uh, in a world that isn't theirs? Now, we can look at it from one level and one dimension, where you can look at it in one dimension and say there are peoples within nations and within countries, because I have people from all around the world who are listening to this and watching this right now, and there are people from all around the world who they find themselves in a place of disenfranchisement, be it because of race or because of sex or because of uh, any form of ethnicity or identity. And so you find yourself in a place of disenfranchisement. And because you find yourself in that place of disenfranchisement, you have a uh, you, you have the capacity to understand what an exilic reality looks like. I'm going to say something that's going to sound really, really crazy. And I want you to stick with me for a moment. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say it. Um, I'm gonna say something that's that that's 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 gonna throw some people off for a moment. Ready for this? Is that if you are a minority in a majority context, then you have probably the most visceral understanding of what it means to be a sojourner in a foreign land. The privilege of the oppressed is that the oppressed have a real-life understanding of what it means to be an exile in a foreign land. There are those of you right now who have experienced oppression, who have experienced disenfranchisement, who have experienced rejection, and you're wondering, man, why do I live in this reality? And yet, here's the privilege that you have is that you have a reminder of how every human being and every believer and every Christian ought to be on the earth, that we ought to see ourselves as foreigners in a foreign land. That's the privilege that we have, family. We have the privilege of that. Now, there are those of us, if you're a woman, or maybe if you're Black in America, or if it's whatever it might be, you can, there's so many different forms of disenfranchisement. There's economic disenfranchisement. There's all forms. And I'm not here to spend all the time on that. I'm here to simply to help you understand that there are those who understand it on that level, and yet it gives you the privilege to understand how we ought to be as people in this world. How we ought to live as people in this world. You see, ready for this? When you understand yourself, let me help you understand this. When you understand yourself as a foreigner in a foreign land, mm -hmm, when the earth is not your home, Oh, it quickly tears down those pillars of God and country. It tears down those pillars of Christianity and politics. It tears down those, 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 those ideologies that are nationalistic. You actually can't be nationalistic and be Christian at the same time. Because you 
as a Christian should see yourself as a foreigner in a foreign land everywhere you go. Hmm. We're all foreigners. All in a foreign land. But we live a life where we seek to establish our rights. I'm sorry, I'm ranting. Let me rant for a minute because there's a lot that's about to really, that's that's brewing up in me that I got to get out. So I'm going to see if I can, I'm trying to tamper myself. I'm trying to tamper myself. We'll see. We'll see what happens here. But this is critically important, family. Critically important. That when we understand ourselves as perpetual foreigners, then now we don't fight, because if we're a foreigner in the entire earth, on the entire land, then I'm not fighting for my right in the land. I'm fighting for my right in the kingdom. Now it's not about building a wall between Mexico and the United States. It's not about the borders and the lines that were created. Can I just say this real quick? If you understand how the enemy works, the enemy has always sought to divide. We who have created borders on the lands and staked flags on them, establishing our own identities in them, are simply other forms of idolatry. That's right. They're an idolatry of self, a glorification of self, a seeking identity in a place when the whole earth is not your home. This isn't yours. The land isn't your land. It's God's land. Ah. And when you understand all of the earth as God's land, then your agenda now is in America. Your agenda, your agenda is not the United Kingdom. Your agenda is not South Africa. Your agenda is not position and power. Your agenda is the kingdom of God. We are all exiles, but do we live with the cognizance that we are exiles? Do we live with the awareness and the understanding that we're exiles? Do we live understanding that in reality we have no right on this earth until Christ rules and reigns over it? Are we establishing the kingdom of God? Or are we propagating our nationalistic tendencies? <sighs> this land is my land. <laughs> it ain't yours. It's God. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. And he said, fill the earth, subdue it. Subdue it. I'm... I'm that's another conversation. We're going to continue to work on that. 
but I had to lead you to this because what Esther does is Esther exposes us to this, this exilic reality. And the one thing that's interesting about the book, Esther, and a side note, quick little side note for y'all, is notice God is nowhere in the book of Esther. <laughs> Just want to point that out. You're not going to see God anywhere here. You're not going to see God explicitly stated in the book of Esther. You're not going to see them say anything about them hearing from God. For, for all intents and purposes, we have no reference to God in the book of Esther. So what is this book doing in the Bible? There's no God in it. Just because God isn't explicitly stated in the book doesn't mean that God is not explicitly working in the book. <laughs> Just because God isn't explicitly stated, go ahead, you can read all through it. Go ahead, read through the whole book. You're going to see there's no reference to God. There's no reference to um, Esther hearing from God or anyone hearing from, there's no reference to it. So why is it in this book? We'll get to that in a minute, but that's not where I want to go yet. That's not where I want to go. We read this story and we see a story of two exiles, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai who, um, who takes on the task of really fathering Esther, okay? who uh, we'll call Mordecai Cuzzo, but he goes from being Cuzzo to being uncle in a way because he's fathering her even though she isn't his daughter, but he fathers her. And Mordecai, who is living in uh, as a Jew in Persia, remember this if you guys uh, don't recall. I'll, live, I'll remind you for a moment. Let me just quickly recap real quick. Um, we talked about this throughout the scripture, right? We get to uh, the end of Second Kings, and at the end of Second Kings, we see the children of Israel have been sent into captivity under Babylonian, under the Babylonian uh, 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 Empire. And then, of course, the Persians take over the Babylonians, and now they're by proxy under Persian uh, rule. And so the children of Israel find themselves in captivity under Persia rule. We just read Ezra and Nehemiah, and in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, we see we see uh, multiple rounds of people going back from uh, from Persia and from Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. Um, the people receive the law, but we see how Ezra and Nehemiah end because Ezra and Nehemiah are basically one book. They're, they're one book split into two. We call one Ezra, we call the other Nehemiah. And so at the end of Nehemiah, we see that even though the city was built and even though the temple was built and even though the law of God was given, the people were not transformed. And so, of course, Nehemiah ends and just asking for God to just acknowledge that he did his best and he tried. And yet what Nehemiah didn't know was that the law actually can't fix anybody and that the law can't fix any, any people. The law doesn't correct anyone. Um, it's, there's something deeper that must happen within the people. And so we see that story transpire. Now, if you look uh, maybe a few years later, we'll say about 20 to 30 decades later, no, sorry, 20 to 30 years later, so two to three decades later, we now find ourselves in Esther because while a group of people had gone back to Jerusalem and gone back to Judah, uh, there was a group of people who still remained in Persia and remained in Babylon and remained in captivity. 
And so Esther and Mordecai are among those people who remained in captivity. Now, why am I bringing all this up? I'm going to get to my point here. They are, uh, they are exiles, okay? They have no direct right in this land. Um, they serve as minority culture in a majority space. They are minorities in a majority space. And so here they are living their lives in this majority space. And we see what has transpired, that the king of Persia, Hazarius, of course, now has a celebration. And in his drunken stupor, he invites Queen Vashti to come in. Queen Vashti, of course, maybe she's got some propriety about her. For whatever reason, Queen Vashti is like, I ain't going out there. That man is crazy. He's all drunk. And there's too much craziness going on out there. I'm just going to stay in my room. Now, we always present like this PG version of these stories. Um, and oh, I know I've got kids, so I got to make sure I got to be real careful about this. Um, if we were to actually do a film about this, there would be nothing PG about these parties. I'll leave it at that, okay? Um, there's nothing PG about this. This is a display. You are eavesdropping in a, t in a display of, I'm talking about debauchery, okay? Just imagine every type of sinful, indulgent behavior. We're talking about just total, total debauchery. For those of you who get it, you'll get it. You know about that life. You know what that life is all about. It's, it's, it was all of that. And of course, Vashti, who is a woman of, maybe a woman of nobility, a woman of propriety. Vashti is like, I'm not walking into that. There's all kinds of craziness happening in there. And I'm just going to stay where I'm at. And of course, the king in his drunkenness and in his drunken stupor says, well, then in that case, we need to do something about it. And so he makes a decree. Um, he sits Vashti down, and then he sends out a decree for men now. Notice now, this is coming from a pagan king. This is not a divine ordinance, but from a pagan king where he sends letters to all the provinces in his kingdom that men ought to rule over their women. Now, again, I'm not here to talk about the man-woman dynamic in the home. But there are a lot of men and women dynamics that we see that have been preached in the church that are actually unbiblical. Let me say that one more time. There are dynamics that have been preached in the church concerning men and women. And these dynamics, rather than being life-giving, are oppressive. I am a man who has, you can call it a loose complementarian perspective, Yes, I believe that that men and women hold different roles. I am not one who says that men and women are the same. They are distinct. However, this idea or this notion of a man ruling over a woman to control her and to tell her what she ought to do and ought not to do, because again, we actually don't understand submission. We don't know what submission actually looks like. And yet it was a mutuality in the relationship that isn't really taught. Yes, wives ought to submit to their husbands, and yet didn't it say that the husbands should give their lives to their wives? Doesn't it say that husbands ought to sacrifice their entire lives to their wives? For anybody who thinks that this is just simply a submission that women have to make towards men, you have 
an unbiblical understanding, an unchristlike understanding of what the dynamic of marriage is. No, there's a mutuality in the relationship. Okay? Yes, wives submit to your husbands, but we forget that husbands ought to give their lives to their wives. I'll take it even one step further. For husbands who ask their wives to submit to them, when's the last time you gave up all of your life to her? I got to call out all the men who say, well, my woman is not listening to me. No, the scripture didn't say for her to listen to everything you say and to blindly follow it. It said for her to submit to your leadership. And yet what kind of leadership have you earned when you haven't even given your life entirely to her? Are you hearing me, fam? Are you hearing me, fam? So we have all these unhealthy dynamics concerning marriage and concerning male leadership. And so when we think about submission, what we're thinking about is rule. Like a man ought to rule over a woman. No, he does not rule. He gives his life for her. He sacrifices his life to her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's Bible. And how did Christ love the church? How did, how did Jesus love the church? Did he tell them, hey, make sure you cook me some food. Hey, make sure you do what I say. Make sure you listen to me and do everything that I tell you because I'm your husband and I ought to rule over you. How did Jesus love the church? Oh, he died for her. He humbled herself, humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant. He washed her feet. He gave his entire life, shed his blood for her. He died for her. That's how you rule. He laid down his life, and that's how he was a husband to his church. And yet, there's a bunch of husbands out here who haven't done any of that and yet demand submission. As if submission isn't the natural response to Christ-like leadership. <laughs> oh man, oh man, I'm ranting, I'm ranting, I'm ranting. Oh man, oh man, oh man, I'm ranting, I'm ranting, I'm ranting. If there's anywhere that the marriage dynamic has been misappropriated, mistaught, has been in the church. We teach men that they control women as if they haven't been made equal to you. He said in the word, I will make a helper who is comparable to him. Did you hear that? Comparable to him. Go back and read Genesis chapter 2. He made him comparable, not above her. I've heard even other uh, people who teach this, and they say, well, the husband is the head over the wife. That's not what the Bible says. The husband is not the head over the wife. Show me where that is in the Bible. Oh, I know all the guys are running to it right now. <laughs> 
That's not what actually the text says. The text says that the husband is the head of the wife. Did you hear me? He's not the head over the wife. He's the head of the wife. That is the role that he plays as the head, the guide, the director, the visionary. He's the head of the wife, not the head over the wife. Therefore, his body, she becomes. And now her well-being is necessary for his well-being. That's why a head will lose itself to save the body because the head is nothing without the body. <laughs> and yet we have these unhealthy dynamics when it comes to marriage because, again, we're actually teaching demonic wisdom concerning marriage. Did you hear that? We we provide demonic wisdom concerning marriage. We tell we we teach that the men control the women, that the men are over the women, that the men and so now because we teach this and we direct this and because we iterate this, we create these toxic, toxic cultures in the church concerning the women. I'm gonna say something that's going to um touch some people. I've heard it once said that those who are most spiritually oppressed are women because they're weaker. First of all, understand when the scriptures speak about a woman being weaker, it's not speaking about her mentally weaker. It's speaking about her physical weakness, that a man has a tendency to be physically stronger than a woman, but he, she's not mentally weaker. Well, because she's mentally weaker or spiritually weaker, then, you know, we have to be the stronger person. That's a bunch of malarkey. It's a bunch of bull. It's a bunch of bull. If you see women dealing more with spiritual issues in the church, I will say that it comes to the perpetual oppression that this male-dominated, toxic masculine culture that we've created in the church has cultivated in our communities that have created women who are profoundly, deeply hurt by this toxic expression. And yet, it isn't biblical. As a matter of fact, it's demonic. This notion, this idea of a man ruling over a woman is demonic. <laughs> it's demonic. Head of the wife, not head over the wife. How does he rule? He gives his life just as Christ did. He humbles himself just as Christ did. He makes himself of no reputation just as Christ did. He makes himself nothing for her just as Christ did for the church. So, fellas, if you're demanding your wife's submission, how about you submit your entire life to her first? Sorry, that was a side. I'm sorry. That was a side sidebar. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was I get a little passionate about that because I am uh 
I am appalled and disturbed. I'm disturbed by that. But anyway, we get to this portion of the text where now they do this beauty pageant, if you will. And Mordecai hears about this beauty pageant, goes and gets his, his cousin, who's become basically his niece. And he says to her, yo, head over there. Uh, you're joining the sweepstakes to become queen. I'm going to set you up, put you, in, put you where you got to go. And so, of course, she gets there and she's immediately favored. She's immediately favored when she gets there. Before she even sees the king, she has favor. She has favor. Now, people will say, well, it must be her beauty. And it could be. She might have been just that beautiful of a woman that she's received favor. It must have been her personality. The scriptures do tell us that the young woman, as it says, I believe, in verse 7, it tells us that the woman was lovely and beautiful. Because, again, lovely and beautiful are two different things. There are beautiful women that aren't lovely, and there are lovely women that aren't beautiful. And, and yet she had both qualities because it's not just about being lovely. And it's not just about being beautiful. But anyway, finding favor is more than that. And so, of course, now he takes her and he raises her. And because of her countenance, her, her personality, because of the grace that has been put upon her, she's been given now this privilege. In verse 17, it tells us the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and all servants, and he obtained a holiday in all the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. So now he has a party. Now Mordecai then catches that there was a plot. Remember this because we're going to come back to it. But Mordecai discovers a plot to kill him. Fast forward. So Esther becomes queen. Fast forward. Mordecai discovers a plot. Mordecai then informs Esther, who is now the queen. Esther then informs the king of Persia. And upon informing the king of Persia, now Mordecai, it's been written in the Chronicles. Notice what it says at the end of that chapter, in chapter 2. It was written in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king that this had transpired, that Mordecai had saved the king that the two men who plotted against him were sent to the gallows, they were executed, and all is well, beautiful. Then we have Haman. And, and, and Haman, or Haman, Haman has been promoted. Now, the scriptures tell us later on, what you've read in chapter 4, is that Haman is the enemy of the Jews. This has been his calling. He was the enemy of the Jews. He was an adversary. But the scriptures tell us in chapter 3, verse 1, that he's the son of Hameditha, uh, the Agagite. Now, the Agagites were uh, descendants of the Canaanites, if you recall. And so there's history there. There is familial history, and there is ethnic history. The same type of tension that we see happening between Haman and Mordecai is the same tension that still continues to uh, progress even in, um, uh, that we see even today. But anyway, we've got Haman or Haman and we've got Mordecai. And here begins the tension between Haman and Mordecai because Haman has been elevated to a high position. And as he's been elevated to the highest position in the land other than king, the scriptures say in verse 2, uh, 
that not only we said above the, the princes who were with him, but it says all the king's servants who were with the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But notice what it says about Mordecai. Apparently Mordecai lived close to the to the citadel. Mordecai lived close to the capital. And Mordecai, again, would not acquiesce to his request. This is the uh this is the um the exile the one in the exilic reality who's in his exilic reality but his set of rules are not the world's set of rules his set of ordinances are not the world's set of ordinances his guide to living is not the world's way of living He's got a different way that he lives. He's got a different way that he moves. He's got a different way. His lifestyle is not theirs. He lives by another means. He lives by another set of rules, by another worldview, by another strategy, by another, I hope you guys are catching where we're at here, is that Mordecai, he don't live like them. And so now when Mordecai has been told to submit to Haman, there is all this history, right, with Haman. And because of all this history, there's more to it. And I know we, we, we don't get to get into all those details, but there's more to it. There's so much history behind what has transpired in that moment that isn't automatically or has, has been told to us directly, but that we should take affirmation to. Now watch this. Then Haman says to King Azarius, there is a certain people, watch this, y'all, because people have been trying to understand why is it that Mordecai didn't just kill Haman? Because now, sorry, that Haman didn't just kill Mordecai. Mordecai is the one that was disobedient. Mordecai is the one who's being belligerent. Mordecai is the one who's the rabble rouser. Why is it that Mordecai's disobedience to submitting to Haman or Haman leads to a decree for all the Jews to be killed. Because Haman knows something that King Ahasuerus doesn't know, is that he his family has, uh, there, there's, there's a vendetta between his people and God's people. There's history there. We just read all that history up to this point. There's history there. This wasn't just about Mordecai. This was about so much more. This was about a people that he could not stand. This was about a people that he hated. And notice what he accuses them of. He accuses them of living by a different set of rules that that, that Persia lives by. He's accusing them for being a peculiar, exilic people in an exilic reality. He's accusing them of living by a whole different set of rules. And Haman now says to King Azarius, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Notice what he says in verse 8. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Ah, I don't have time. (laughs) I don't have time. 
But did y'all catch that? Did you catch that? They were different. They weren't like everybody else. He says in Esther chapter 3, verse 8, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among all the people in all the provinces of the kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's and they do not keep the king's laws. Two things. First of all, their laws are different from all other people's, meaning their laws aren't just different from the Persians. Their laws are different from the from the, the Canaanites. Their laws are different from the Babylonians. Their laws are different from the Hittites, from the Hivites, from the Jebusites, from the Ammonites. Their laws are different from everyone else. They're different from the Agagites. These guys are different. Did you hear that, family? That's the first thing. It's not just that they're different from your rules. They're different from everybody. First thing to notice about these people is that the means by which that they're being accused is simply for being distinct and different. They didn't live by our principles. They didn't live by our lifestyle. They didn't live by our way of being. Let me say one thing to y'all, and I hope you guys understand this and get this, is that the way you ought to live as a people of God, should not be subject to a region, a location. It should not be subject to an ideology or a philosophy. It should not be Republican. It should not be Democrat. It should not be American. It should not be, um, um, it shouldn't be French. It shouldn't be English. It shouldn't be African. It shouldn't be Jamaican. It shouldn't be Chilean. It shouldn't be Venezuelan. It shouldn't fit anything. When they see how you live, they have to say the way you live is different from everything else, from all other people's laws, from all other people's cultural context, from all other people's way of living, from all other philosophies. It's got to be different than all of them. And what they're being accused of is that their rules are different. They go by a different set of rules. Meaning, they are in their exilic reality. They are first children of God before they're captives. They are Jews before they're Persians. Remember, we're talking about centuries later, family. We're talking about a hundred years after. This is when this is transpiring, about a century later. So there's about a generation already that was that has now been born in Persia, born in Babylon, born in exile. Their citizenship is in that nation, and yet they were still Jews, foreigners in another land. And yet they did not compromise because they were not Persian before they were Jew. They were Jew before they were Persian. This is not to say that you ought to throw away your ethnicity. You ought to throw away your culture. You ought to throw away your identity. You ought to throw away what you're called to be, what you're called to do. You ought to throw all that away. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying to you is that your exilic conviction should inform your cultural expression. Let me say that one more time. Your exilic identity should inform 
your cultural expression. You are not an American Christian. You are not an African Christian. You are not a Jamaican Christian. You are not an English Christian. You are not a French Christian. You are not a Catholic, not a Catholic. You are not a Christian after. You're a Christian first. That's right. Even your political philosophy, you're not a socialist Christian. You're not a, 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 a capitalist Christian. And that's the problem with a lot of us today is that we are imposing our regional cultural identities on our Christianity. You're not a Baptist Christian. That's right. You're not a Baptist Christian. You're, you're, you're not a Pentecostal Christian. You're not a Presbyterian Christian. That's the problem, y'all. The problem is, is that many of us identify our Christianity secondary to whatever cultural, contextual, or denominational ideologies are. When you are first a Christian, then you are everything else. You're a Christian Republican. You're a Christian Democrat. You're a Christian Jamaican. You're a Christian American. Because Christian comes before American. Christian comes before Republican. Christian comes before Democrat. Christian comes before your ethnicity. I'm, I'm a Haitian, but I'm a Christian first. And my Christianity and my Christian identity and my exilic reality, that informs, that informs the philosophy. Because now we have a bastardized Christianity that's been beat down by all these forms of demonic wisdom. You're Christian first, because now your Christianity informs how you're Jamaican. Your Christianity is primary, and that informs everything else. Give me five minutes. And so their laws, in verse 8, are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. The second part of that is, they don't keep these laws either. So first thing, first problem is, is they don't follow anybody else's laws. They have their own way of living. And the second one is, is they don't live or keep your laws. Therefore, get rid of them. And then he offers to pay for it. I'll pay for the executions. This is an agenda. Haman has a nation And now he wants to go after a nation. Haman's nation wants to go after a nation. And notice, family, pay very close attention because we're going to be working Esther. Oh, my gosh. <sighs> Ready for this? Pay very close attention because I'm getting to the end. But I want you to pay attention that there's a battle brewing up. That if you miss it, you miss it but there's a battle growing up. We have Persia, dominant culture. Persia is the world that everybody sees. 
Persia is the world. Persia sees the king. See, but underneath it, there's another power that's governing. There's a battle brewing up. You could say it's Mordecai versus Haman. Or you can look at it even deeper and say, this is a nation of Canaanites going up against a nation of Israelites. This is the opposers of the children of God going up against the children of God. Pay very close attention because you might miss it. So don't miss it because I want you to pay attention. You're hearing this, that there are two nations forming. There are two nations at odds here. And so we see all this happening. But what we see is the children of Israel now are in contest with the children of Haman. And the children of Haman, sorry, the children of, uh, of the Canaanites are now manipulating the system to oppress the children of God. Oh. That is, there are two mystical kingdoms at war under a kingdom, and yet the battle is not being fought with swords. The battle's being fought with words. And now the decree has been written because again, there's a battle being fought. There are powers, there are things happening in the shadows, there are things lurking behind the scenes. And now we see the decree has been written that all the children of Israel must die. Mordecai is weeping and he's weeping and he's mourning the sentence, not on him, but on all his people. He's mourning a death sentence. And he sends word to Esther. Because in the kingdom, there is one that is an infiltrator. There's an infiltrator in the kingdom. There's one who enters into the system. There's one who enters into enemy territory. There's one who comes into enemy territory. And yet, while they may not be um, while they may not have enfranchisement, while they may be exiles, but they stand there in authority in a foreign land. That person's name is Esther. And Esther gets word about what's happening to her people. And she says, I can't even speak on this because I'm an exile. I live by the same rules. I, I do the same. I, I'm, I would fall under the same condemnation. And what does she do? She writes the letter back to him in verse 13. And Mordecai then responds and told them to answer Esther and say this, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the Jews. 
Because no matter how much you assimilate, no matter how much power you have, no matter how much position you have, no matter how much how comfortable they make you, you don't fit here. This world is not yours. It is not your home. So stop living like it. For if you remain, verse 14, completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this cliff note version. If you don't speak up, there's another that will come after you because God's promise on his children will come into fruition. The promise that he has on his children will never return to him void. God's going to do what he does because God's promises are God's promises. God will keep his promises. The question is, is do you have the courage to step up and open your mouth? Do you have the courage to step up and to speak up? Do you have the courage to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you have the courage to say, I'm going to break away from dominant thinking and dominant culture? Do you have the courage to step out? And yet the symbol of courage in this text is a beautiful young woman named Esther. And the one thing that Mordecai suggests to her is, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who, who knows, family? Who, who knows if you were called here for such a time as this? Who knows if God puts you here for such a time as this? Man of God, who knows if God has called you for such a time as this? Woman of God, who knows if God has called you for such a time as this? Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom? You're not here by accident. You're not here by accident. There's an intentionality to your presence right now. Your presence has purpose. You exist because God is fulfilling his promise through you. Who knows? Who knows what you could accomplish simply by knowing that and believing in that? What kind of boldness would you have? if you would finally acknowledge that, no, the Lord is calling me for such a time as this. <sighs> and yet Esther closes with the most gangster words I have ever heard in the text. The most gangster word in the Bible came from a woman Just thugged out. She hears him and she says to them, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. 
Don't eat for three days. Don't drink for three days. I'm going to fast. And my maids are going to fast. And I'm about to do something that might kill me. And I'm about to break the law. I'm about to break the law. I'm going to do something that might kill me. I might do something that that might sentence me to death. I might do something that's going to get me in trouble. I might do something that's going to... So, fam, I'm going to do something that might just end me. Might end my position. Those were Esther's words. That might end me. But if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. Because I'm making a decision in this moment not to compromise my identity. Fam, if you're living in an exilic reality as a minority, as one who doesn't live, you nobody's like you. Don't ever compromise your identity. If you die, you die in it. But hold fast to your faith. That's the kind of radical faith that God wants. He wants you to hold fast. And here it is. Ready for this? I challenge you to pray for something that goes way beyond your power and way beyond your ability. Like, like, like really step into something. God's calling some of you into some things right now that require you, not a strategy. There's some things that God's telling you to do that you've written it down on paper and you're looking at it and you're saying, man, it's going way beyond my ability. There's some things right now that God is calling you to step into and calling you to step out of and you're saying, man, I don't know how I'm going to do it. And what your response is going to be is, I'm going to need to pray. And I'm going to need some friends to pray with me. And I'm going to need to fast. I dare you to do some things that require you to fast to do it. That you depend so much on the power of God in order for it to be accomplished in your life that you've got to fast to do it. That, that, that your life is on the line. It's so risky. It's so big. It's so out of this world. It's so out of the capacity that you have. It's so out of the periphery of the reality of your life. It's so out of your facility that you have to fast and pray for it. Ask God to give you a call and a challenge so big that you don't know how it's going to work. It's going to require you and the people who are closest to you to pray. And if I perish, I perish. May we all have Esther's boldness. May we all, even in our exilic realities, have Esther's boldness. Women of God, may you have Esther's boldness to step out and do some things that go beyond you, that make you depend on God. May you walk out in boldness to do some things that are going to go way beyond your facility and your capacity. May God challenge you in a way that you've never been challenged before. May you be called to do something so big that you got to fast to do it. That you have to pray to do it. May he make you so uncomfortable, man of God, 
May he make you so uncomfortable to step out from among them and be ye separated that you would say, Lord, I need you now. And may you live with the boldness and the comfort that even after all this, if I die, to God be the glory. If I fall on my face, to God be the glory. <sighs> if I perish, I perish. Do you understand how bold those words were? And even though Esther fasted and prayed, she still said, if I perish, I perish. Because in her mind, I'm doing something that goes way beyond what I could do, so much so that I've got to pray and fast to do it. But even after I pray and fast, if I fall on my face, then I fall on my face. I just need the boldness to just do it. If I fail, I fail. If I die in this, I die in this. If I go on this hill and I perish, then let me perish. But the one thing I need, I need you to pray for me to just have enough courage to do it. To just go and do the thing that goes way beyond me. Let us all have that kind of boldness. Let us all have that kind of boldness. Father, I ask, Lord, that you would Give us boldness today. There are those of us right now who are in uh, contexts where we are the minority. Or we go at our jobs and nobody's a Christian. We go, we're in our families and yet nobody has a boldness for Christ. We're, 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 um, we find ourselves in places where nobody thinks the way we think and we find ourselves on the outside looking in. And oh, there's such a temptation for us to uh, to assimilate, to acclimate. We have this tension, Lord, to just fit in, just to stay quiet, to stay under the radar. But Lord, I pray today that you would give each and every person who's watching this right now the boldness to say, if I die, I die, but I'm about to speak up. So if Lord, give us the boldness to speak up. Give us the boldness to break some rules. Give us the boldness to speak out, to step out, and to know, Lord, that you are with us. For we don't do this for success. We do this out of conviction. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.